Hello, and welcome back. My name's James Marley. I'm a co-founder of Livewire Markets, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. I'll be hosting the show this year, along with Livewire's Deputy Managing Editor, Ali Selby. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. For our first interview of 2024, we're going to be diving into the world of growth investing with Jason Orthman, Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Hyperion Asset Management. I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with Hyperion. Today, Hyperion manages more than $13 billion in assets with two Australian funds and a more recently established global equity strategy. Their portfolios are highly concentrated, bearing little resemblance to their benchmarks. Hyperion's funds have an impressive long-term track record, and their global fund topped the performance tables in 2023 with a 69% return for the year. But these strong numbers come off the back of 2022, which was a difficult year for growth and required investors to sit tight and hold their nerve. It sounds simple, but in practice, it's far more difficult to pull off. In this episode, we'll be learning about Hyperion's tried and tested philosophy of finding exceptional growth companies. We'll touch on the macro environment and how this impacts growth assets in the short term. And we'll explore some of the structural growth trends and companies that Hyperion is backing for the next decade of growth. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified when new episodes are available. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. With that, let's get on with the show. Jason, great to have you on The Rules of Investing, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Great. Thanks, James. Now, I've provided listeners with a brief introduction on Hyperion, but perhaps you could just explain the way that you think about growth investing. Sure. So um, clearly, as a growth investor, sales and earnings per share growth at high rates over a long period of time is incredibly important. But we view ourselves as a, a subset of the broader growth investor. And we're really focused on quality, structural growth. And in our view, a lot of growth managers, momentum stocks, speculative stocks. And so we spend a lot of time around the qualitative elements to make sure that we're in these market leaders that are dominating, that can take market share and grow at, at long periods of time, over long periods of time. And what you find is for these market leaders, you to end up with positive optionality. So these businesses are actually undervalued on a long-term sense. Our definition of growth is, is quite narrow and, and we think is diff- differentiated. And what have you learned over the course of, it's close to 20 years that, you've, that, you've been, that Hyperion's been running you know, about the factors that separate those amazing growth companies from the rest of the pack? Yeah, well, because they're so, so rare, they are hard to identify. So you may spend three to five years analysing a business and, and it may simply be on your watch list, on your bench before you initiate a, initiate a position. I mean, we could be looking at the qualitative elements of that business, trying to d- understand what's the value proposition, what's the sustainable competitive advantage, why can they take market share for a long period of time? So really what's special and disruptive about that business? And it, it may, may take you some time to build conviction. And we, we also may be looking at the um, financial inflection points. So when is this business gonna scale profitably? How does it get to those super, super normal profit. So, so there's a lot of work to be done up, up front because the markets 
really act like a power law. It, it tends to be a winner takes all. I mean, you want to avoid those those growth growth stocks that don't become market leaders over time. So it's really those qualitative elements that are really important. I, I can understand the appeal of investing for growth globally, and, and maybe this is a misnomer, but Australia is typically viewed as as rich in income, great dividend yields, good good structure that way. But it's light on in the growth department, and the few growth stocks that we do have in Australia often look eye-wateringly expensive. Is that is that a fair challenge in the Australian market, or are we overlooking an opportunity that Hyperion has identified? Well, the real big inefficiency that Hyperion exploits is really taking a, a long-term view in, in a short-term world. So there really is a, a time arbitrage. I mean, so a lot of these t- stocks can look opti- op- optically expensive or be on high short-term short-term multiples. But when you look out with a longer lens, look out over 5, 10, even 25 years, these stocks actually can be in- incredibly cheap if, if the earnings actually materialises and the investment thesis plays out. I mean, there's a lot of behavioural biases in the market, a lot of in- incentives that the market seems to focus on short-term earnings, maybe over the next 12 months, 12-month share price targets, and you're actually missing a lot of that positive optionality I mean, these businesses, and you end up with a market full of potentially traders rather than, rather than business owners. So that time arbitrage is incredibly important for us, trying to look at a business, analyse it like a, a long-term holder. And then you, you find that the earnings profile can be materially higher than expectations. And it's really a beat the fade type concept. So there's a small group of businesses that can grow at um, double digit rates for long periods of time. And as you look out a number of years, suddenly those optically expensive multiples become actually incredibly cheap or, or, or low. I might put a few, just bring up a few names because I was looking at the top five holdings across your two Australian funds. One's a, an X100, so small cap focus fund and the other, I believe, tracks the all, the all Lords Accumulation Index. And when I looked at those funds, there were some cross holdings, names like Zero, WiseTech, ProMedicus, I believe. Now, they may have changed since December, but there were some cross holdings between what is a large cap and a small cap fund. Is that How has that come about? Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit unusual. So and it's definitional. Definitional. So, like most of our peers, if you're investing in in, in small cap stocks domestically, our bench is X X100. So we need to look at at those businesses that that are yet to enter the ASX 100. What's actually differentiated potentially to our peers is if some of those companies actually become really successful, continue to grow at double digit rates, we will hold those businesses rather than exit them as they go into the ASX 100. And so over time, things like REA Group, or to your, to your point, WiseTech, as they've been successful, they've migrated up to the um, Australian Large company, Companies Fund, but we've retained those positions in, in the small cap fund while they're still growing at a double-digit rate. And there's some businesses that obviously they start to mature and they get removed from that from that small cap fund. So um, what it does mean is there's it skews to a larger market cap, it skews to, to higher quality, and I think it's one of the reasons why the earnings per share profile of that fund has actually outperformed small odds index. And the small odds index really hasn't grown earnings per share over the last 20 years. And part of it, I think, is some of those stocks sort of coming in and out of those index. They tend to be more concept or high risk stocks. I mean, so we've found it quite favourable to retain some of those stocks as they've become successful and moved into you know the ASX 100, which is relatively arbitrary. 
as long as they're still growing it at um, at high rates. It it makes a lot of sense, really, doesn't it? Not your best stocks tend to be businesses with good momentum and and are going well, and you're not forcing yourselves to sell it. Was that a, a deliberate part of the design of the you know the rules of the fund? I mean, that's you know the, I think a lot of managers would love small cap managers would love to be able to hold on to those names as they graduate. Our thinking was, yeah, it's quite arbitrary around those around those benchmarks, and and absolutely. How would you do it if you had a had a clean sheet clean sheet of paper? And, and for us, we don't want to give up. It's so difficult to find these businesses, these market leaders that can compound over over long over, over long periods of time. You, you want your unit holders to to retain that exposure and 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 invest. And it won't be in, in it won't be indefinitely because at some point those businesses will potentially mature. But for us, as long as there's you know, a funnel of other stocks and, and traditional, you know, X100 coming through. We're quite comfortable to to harvest and hold those those large larger names rather than arbitrarily selling them out at, at a point in time. As I mentioned in my introduction, you have two Australian funds and Hyperion's roots are with definitely in the Australian market with heritage back to, to Wilson HTM, I believe, some connections there. But nine years ago, you launched a, a global fund, which I think a lot of people would be familiar with now. What was the the mindset that uh you know some stock investors in Brisbane could take it on the global stage? It's quite a a big and different universe. You're you're right. We're really proud of what we've achieved in the two domestic funds, both in Australian growth and and small and small cap growth. And when we've looked back over time, if if we can take a one dollar investment from a client, we've been able to turn that into four to five dollars over time. And that's obviously with market. Market returns and and our performance above above the benchmark. So, you know that's incredibly rare and and, and valuable. And we and we wanted to offer that in into the global market as well. Compete on on the world stage and and really test ourselves globally. But probably more importantly, when you when you look at the Australian stock exchange, there is limited choice. It is a pretty narrow market. And although we're really proud of our our track record, it's actually not a natural place to to actually invest as a quality structural growth investor. And so I think Hyperion would have, would have always ended up in, in in global equities because there's just more choice when you when you go offshore. There's more options. And and what you tend to find is the quality increases, the actual level of structural growth increases, and your underlying fundamental risk decreases. So again, like we think we can add a lot of value across Australian equities and, and small cap equities. Um, but we think we can even do better offshore in in in, in global e- equities with just more choice, and it's just a more natural um, hunting ground for, for. Do you invest in the global equity space the same way you do for the Australian funds? Yeah, it's ex- exactly the same. There's been no no fundamental changes. It's the same inefficiencies we exploit, the same philosophy, the same process, same portfolio management, same key key decision makers. So it's been a relatively straightforward move. Of course, the size of the investment investment teams increase multiples as we've leveraged up our our capabilities. But there's there's no there's no difference, and it's quite arbitrary. Talking about index occlusion earlier, it's quite arbitrary where businesses are listed. I mean, so you're still analysing business exactly the same, whether it's listed here or or, or offshore, and, and we're just looking for those market leading businesses that are going to move the markets markets higher. So there's no changes through to to move to global. What about things like access? To management, I imagine, you know, Hyperion can put in a call to to Don May down at Domino's Pizza and, and stroll on down the street and get a pretty in depth update. 
but maybe you know getting a, a, a sitting with Elon Musk might might be pose a different challenge. How do you deal with things like that in terms of getting access to management? Yeah, so that so that's been a journey as you as you'd as you'd expect, and um, to your point, we're a relatively large fish in a, in a small small pond here, and then suddenly you're growing into to these large, large markets. But the access has improved significantly over time, and such that you know we are engaging with some of these founders and, and CEOs now. And I think part of that's been actually through the through the drawdown you saw and then the recovery into 2023, like we held our conviction, we'll increase our positions as required. And I don't think that's gone unnoticed with some of the businesses that we we invest in. So I've, I've really noticed the, uh, the step up in engagement and access that we, ha- we had. I mean, we caught up with Jack Dorsey recently. He's obviously, you know, a visionary, a billionaire. He, he sold um, Twitter, obviously, or X on, onto, onto Elon, but, you know, still still retains his executive duties in 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 block so you know that was in enjoyable in engaging engaging there but if you take a step back access is is interesting it cross checks your thoughts we're focused on the long term but that's really one percent of our of our process so you know whether we had management access or not I, st- I still think we'd you know outperform um, over time because we, we're just pushing it through our financial models our research templates and our and our, and our portfolio management but yeah we've noticed um, a leveling out of the access across all, all products over time which is which is good well you, you've alluded to it's it there and it's something I, I want to spend a little time digging into which was 2022 was uh, a really difficult year for Hyperion and for for, for growth investors in general. And your funds had had a big drawdown in that year. Keen to just get your take on on the factors that contributed to this, and and sort of take us through like what what went on. Yeah, so 2022 was incredibly incredibly unusual period. I mean, you haven't seen that in 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 modern capitalism, and and so we've gone back and had a look at markets over the last 250 years and you haven't seen interest rates at the long end move that quickly and and to that level over over 250 years of data so i mean we we believe it's a one in 250 year event but the drawdown in 2022 was really driven by interest rates the long end moving moving up rapidly i mean using 10-year u.s treasuries as as really the proxy and so when you are trying to be a growth invest compound returns at double digit rates at long periods of time you effectively take on duration risk because the cash flows and a lot of the value in these businesses is potentially out decades and so you need to discount those future cash flows back to today and so there's a discount rate that the market will try and assess to discount them out and that's very sensitive to interest rate moves and and therefore price earnings multiples so as Interest rates at the long end moved up really quickly. PEs of long duration or growth stocks moved down really, really quickly. And again, you hadn't seen that over the last 250 years because typically interest rates move slower and any PE movements can be offset by earnings per share growth, whereas it just happened too too rapidly this time. So in our view, there's not a lot of signals for managers in what happened in, in 2022, it basically shows you the duration of your portfolio, how long to get your cash flows back and how sensitive you are. But in our view, that's not reflective of the stocks that you own, the underlying fundamentals. And hence, you've seen that 
return or recovery or mean reversion to the positive side in, in 2023. But the really unusual thing about it as well, the drawdown is drawdowns typically occur because you have some sort of economic crisis. It might be a recession, a shock, slowing nominal GDP growth. This was really driven by driven by interest rates. And when you have those uh, traditional drawdown, growth investors through the cycle and active manage, growth managers like Hyperion actually tend to outperform because you're actually less sensitive to the general economic conditions because you've got market-leading businesses with pricing power and the ability to take market share. So it was very unusual because through a drawdown period, historically Hyperion would outperform through that cycle and growth investors would probably outperform through that cycle. But this was all based on expectations about discount rates and what interest rates are going to do to, to PEs, which is all short-term and, and non-fundamental. And that's why we're always confident with our market-leading businesses that would come out of the other side, and, and certainly that's happened in, in 2023. Do you recall what it was like in 2022 during the depths of the drawdown? What, what was it like managing money at, at that point? Was you know a few sleepless nights with the phones ringing? What, what was the, the environment like for you as an investor? We, we were relatively relax because we have conviction in the businesses that we own and we're really focused on on that signal not not the noise and a lot of market participants are really focused on that short-term share price performance or and, and things like that whereas we're really focused on is the intrinsic values of the portfolios holding are the earnings per share of these portfolios still increasing are our businesses taking market share are the metrics that we look at and track these businesses continuing to improve and nothing had really changed on on the fundamentals, so we so we were pretty relaxed. It was more a timing issue, but of course you run run external money. Your clients and stuff and some staff might be as close to you as some of those positions. So you really have to over communicate and actually explain what what's happening, and obviously provide provide con- conviction because everyone's got different levels of tolerance to to volatility and, and shocks. But for us, it was actually not as painful or disruptive as you would as you would think it was just probably some more effort required in in communication with with your client base and and your staff base yeah not a bad thing in terms of reflecting on on that period is is there anything that you'd change about how you you know were there any lessons and, and things that in retrospect you'd you'd do differently it, well it's difficult and and obviously we continue to review and 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 you want to do do well through through all, all periods but the reality is there's trade-offs in in investing and and sometimes you have to take some short-term disturbance to really outperform long term and we will always choose long term over over the short term and and so we know we have a philosophy a process a structure that works over multiple year periods and we know that we at our best we can compound returns at double digit rates over over a long, long period of time. But we hadn't obviously designed that process for a one in 250-year event where interest rates move too quickly for that earnings to, to offset those PE, PE moves. And it's, and, it, and it's difficult to, to make those adjustments. But what we have done is on through our cash management system, we've added that duration impact in, into the cash management system. So we'll allocate cash more slowly into a drawdown, which is driven by interest rates. Of course, if we think it's a one in two hundred year event, we don't think we'll see it in our career, you know, our kids' career or or, our, or grandchildren's career. 
But that being said, we've added that into the cash management system, but but that's not core either to to the philosophy or, or process. One of the things that you've done well is is bounce back out of that that period off a, a difficult year. You, you know, your global growth fund top top the Australian charts for for 2023, and I know it's a, a one year performance. We don't you're looking for longer term, but obviously holding conviction in in those those ideas and for context for, for listeners. You know the top ten positions can be as much as seventy percent of the portfolio. I think, I think from memory, you know, twelve percent allocation to Tesla, something along those lines. I'd be really keen to to hear about how you go about building so much conviction in a thesis that allows you to to sit through those moments of, of maximum pain, so that you can come out the other side. Yeah, so a, a lot of work has been has been done up front, and that can be over that three to five year period before you. Before you make that in investment, so that gives you a lot of conviction and confidence in in the underlying fundamentals. Of course, things can go against you, and the best way to re- retain that confidence is to actually go back to first principles, actually review the qualitative elements. Why is this business special? What's so compelling about its value proposition? Why does it have a sustainable competitive advantage? Why is it a natural monopoly? Why can it grow? You know, quickly over long, long, long periods of time, and just revisit that investment thesis. And if you tend to do that, you're starting to move back to the fundamentals, and it, and it does give you give you confidence. But you know, whether it's a stock or whether it's a portfolios, I mean, we've been stress tested a lot. You've had short reports, you've had macro shocks, you've had interest rates moving rapidly at, at the at the long end, you've had recessions, and we've always come out the other side. And if, if you step back, a lot of the businesses that we own are market leading. They're some of the best businesses in our view that are listed on the exchanges. So you need to have some sort of confidence that tomorrow is going to be better than better than today and, and just continually to re- review and go back to first principles and, and really not let the share price dictate your behavior or provide you information, but actually use that as an, as an, an opportunity and, and try and actually focus on the fundamentals and stop trying to react to share prices and actually take advantage of them. I mean, you can actually move your weights around by, by doing that. That was actually going to be my next question. So why don't we, we dig into that a little bit more? As I mentioned, some you can have very big weights in stock, so they can, and, and some of them are quite volatile. Tesla stock I've mentioned already, it's you know a, a double-digit weight, I believe, in the global fund, and it's, it's having a tough time at the moment. How do you, how do you work with managing the, the position sizes and, and, and maybe Give us a lesson on how to take advantage of, 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 of that volatility. Yeah, sure. So the um, portfolio management is equally as important as, as stock st- selection. So once you've done all that hard work to do the stock selection, you, you need to get those weights weights right. And we really focus on risk-adjusted forecast returns. So essentially, the higher the forecast 10-year internal rate of return, the higher the business quality of that business and the higher the confidence in actually achieving our terminal value, the higher the weight. So we risk adjust our long-term valuations. And clearly it's relative. We, each stock's competing with the other. And it's obviously dynamic. Your business quality score may, may change over time. Your intrinsic value estimates may change. Your confidence around those risk adjustments in the management team, in the business, in the earnings profile could change. But the main change day today is really the the share price, um, and and clearly we can't can't control that. But what we tend to do is if the share prices move 
to such an extent and for non-fundamental reasons, um, we all take advantage of them. So we tend to be contrarian in nature and negative momentum. And so what that means is if a business like, whether it's Tesla or whether it's WiseTech, if that is moving up dramatically, the share prices are in, increasing dramatically and we can't identify why. So we haven't changed our intrinsic value. We haven't changed our business quality score. We haven't changed our risk adjustments. Then our weights will reduce and we will sell into that strength. Conversely, if Tesla or WiseTech is, is moving down and we can't identify why, we will increase our weights and buy into that into that weak, weakness. So it may surprise some as, as an investor that wants to compound at higher rates, there were actually negative momentum or contrarian around those position sizing. And so good examples is, you know, when we've seen WiseTech or Tesla, the share prices moving at extreme levels in and out of results, the number of shares held in each of those stocks may increase by 30 to 50% or they might decrease by 30 to 50%. I mean, what we found over time is our excess returns versus the benchmark or our alpha, broadly, there's been an equal contribution to that stock selection or holding those names, but also actually getting those weights broadly right over time. And and that, my understanding is that doesn't mean a complete exit of the stock. I I think portfolio turnover, the portfolio turnover number is is three times what the actual company turnover number is. So the name might stay on the register, but the size moves up and down. Yeah, exactly. And so, of, of course, if the investment thesis breaks, you need to exit the position. If the internal rate of return goes to such a low level that you don't have much of a margin over the risk-free rate, you need to need to exit. And clearly, you need to be reviewing all those factors that flow down the funnel to set your valuations, to set your set your weights but most of the time the only thing is changing is the share price of those businesses and the share prices relative to each other and so if if it does move to extreme levels and for non-fundamental reasons it makes intuitive sense to us to be contrarian and take advantage of that and so again it's a very different mindset trying to take a long-term view in a short-term world really acting like you know business owners rather than rather than traders and taking advantage of it. But of course, we continually need to be paranoid and adjust our views if, if, if required. And, and that's, that's the challenge of growth investing, but also the, you know, the fun elements of, of growth investing. Hmm. You know, I, I'm sure you would rather sit down and talk about company fundamentals till, till, till the sun sets. But you know, I, I tuned into one of your recent webinars and, and your colleague, Mark Arnold, spent some time outlining sort of a, a bit of a house view on the macro environment. So maybe, I'll, you know, you could give me a bit of a, a distillation of, you know, what your view is on the macro environment right now and, and why that matters and, and what it means for growth investing. Sure. When, when we look at investing over, over a long period of time and our, and our investment horizon is, is 10 years, you really need a standard economic framework and you want the same assumptions flowing through your financial models, through your, through your valuations. So that long-term economic framework, not short-term macro, is incredibly important. And really, from the onset of the GFC, our view has been and still is that we're in a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate world. And clearly, there's been been an aberration with the shutdown of COVID and, and the reopening. 
but our view is as things normalize and we move forward we're actually going to return back to that low nominal growth low interest rate low low inflation world and it's really by looking at the structural drivers of, of those key aspects and over long periods of time it's the demographics that actually dominate and so when we look at the key markets around the world they're all aging which puts pressure on consumption puts pressure on on aggregate demand puts puts pressure on your nominal nominal growth rates and then on and then when we look at inflationary expectations there's a lot of disruptive technology whether it's robotics whether it's automation that in our view will put pressure on energy prices put pressure on wages over long, over long periods of time and so that's really our landscape as we look out to tw- 25 years and go back to first principles what is actually going to drive some of this macro over, over a, a long period of time and really what's happened over the last few years hasn't hasn't changed our our view at all that we think we're going back to low growth low inflation and therefore low low interest interest rates and do you have an internal forecast or estimate for what the that 10 year bond rate could be do you have a have something you put into your models that that you think is realistic and reflective of those assumptions yeah so clearly when 10 year us treasury is using that as a as a proxy went you know below 50 basis points and the, and then at one point last year it was up near 500 basis points you know that's a large range and we need to make an assessment if we're setting an intrinsic value in 10 years time what that 10 year US treasuries will will be or will average over over that 10 year period and again our assumption hasn't changed like prior to covid or or as we're coming out of it now it still sits as at 250 300 basis points is broadly where we think interest rates will will move and and clearly 10 year US treasuries are today sitting at at, a, at about at, at about 4% and the market is so fixated on where interest rates are going, you know what inflation's doing, where short-term P's are focused. But we've seen no reason to change our forecast average over over the over the next ten years. And we do expect those ten U.S. Treasuries to drift down, particularly as economic conditions starting starting to tighten up. That narrative around disinflation and slowing growth, the easy assumption could be that it it makes it tough. For companies to grow, but I guess y- your perspective would be it means that those companies that can grow above the 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 economic prevailing economic conditions become more prized. Yeah, that that's correct. So certainly for the broader market, it, it makes things really difficult. So our expectations that earnings per share for for the broader market will will grow at low single digits over over time, and so that will produce low single digit mid single digit equity returns which is not not that attractive for the risks that you take on like capitalism is really destructive but the good news is it makes growth investing more valuable if you if you can get it right so if you can find some businesses that can grow their earnings per share or portfolio at double digit rates rather than low single digits that becomes in, incredibly valuable and what we've seen over time as well, if you go back from 1926 to today and look at the traditional farmer French characteristics, value, which comprises most of the market, tends to do well and out, outperform at high nominal GDP growth periods. 
but every time nominal GDP growth rates slow or contract, growth tends to outperform value. And so it's really counterintuitive. So from through all these recessions, or most of these recessions from 1926 up till today, growth has outperformed value when things have really, really tightened up. And I think it does go back to the fact that if you can find these businesses that have something special and disruptive about them and can actually take market share, they're less sensitive to those econ- economic conditions. So growth investing is going to be arg- become arguably much more important over you know the next year and, and decade if we are right and and, mar- and broader market returns go go to sort of low low single digit returns. Keen to touch on just the framework that. Hyperion is set up for creating buckets for the the opportunities or the growth opportunities that you've identified and and I won't list them all there's there's 12 structural growth trends or thematics that 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 you've identified for people listening to the podcast the top 3 just to give you some perspective and and these are by by weights in terms of companies within them digital transformation of the workplace so things like productivity the shift to AI based on on software platforms is is a seventeen percent size position. Modernizing the banking and payments. Think about Visa and Mastercard. Jason, for for people on the on on the podcast, maybe explain how, you know the role that these thematics play and 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 some of the ones that you may be most excited about. Yeah. So when you're trying to identify opportunities, trying to identify those companies that are going to become your next blue chips that are really going to drag markets markets higher. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can use quantitative process, use filters, look for financial imprints of, of quality and, and growth, or you can try and look forward and, and find areas that are going to grow above bro- the broader economy and identify those market winners in there. So it's really a qualitative screening and it's a good way to organize yourself and, and the team as well. And so when we look at if we think the pie, the economic pie is going to be broadly flat over the next 10 or, or 20 years, it's really going to come down to how you divide that pie up. And so we're looking for, for areas that are, are going to outperform. And so when we look at, look at some, so if we look at businesses, as, as an example, we think there's still a huge opportunity to put software into those businesses digitize workflows and there's just so much bureaucracy so much specialization that's required within within businesses you really need to unlock lock that through through software and so when we look at the average knowledge work they only add value about 20% of the day and so if you put this, a bunch of studies together you spend 30% of your time away from away from your desk you spend 20% of your time looking for information or looking for a colleague, and you spend 30% of your time checking emails. So your productivity is limited to 20% of your day. So we think there's a wonderful opportunity in some of these SaaS businesses. And that's become amplified even further as artificial intelligence, machine learning can be used by some of these SaaS businesses. And so before you know automation dis- displaces human labor, there is a point where we believe these knowledge workers, workers are going to use software effectively, going to use artificial intelligence and machine learning effectively to just become quite productive. So we think there's a lot of value creation in, um, in that structural theme as, a, as an example. Have you developed a few productivity hacks of your own? Sounds like you spent yeah. some time thinking about it. Yeah, well, we, we've, 
we've done the same as a, a lot of people and you know how can and some of these lar- large language models you know benefit you in, internally and you know and we've got some incredibly smart people coming up through the business as well and and through using some of these large language models you can build redundancy in in some of your coding you can push python in, into your processes and modernize your processes so even internally in terms of how we filter for things how we run our processes some of that artificial intelligence and machine learning you know we've picked up and experimented in in our in our businesses as I assume others have too is there you know maybe pick a business from the portfolio in that productivity space that you think is is doing you know just give people a bit of a flavor for for how how it's impacting productivity and 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 changing the way people work yeah so one of our key holdings and particularly if you look at the um Global Fund is is really around ServiceNow. And so what ServiceNow is doing is trying to optimise your workflows, digitise your workflows. And it really started 20 years ago in ITSM or Information Technology Service Management, which is really a way of ticketing your IT jobs if you've got a hardware issue or a soft, with your computer or a software bug, is how do you do that in a more effective way rather than picking up the phone or, or emailing. And they're actually in 50% of large enterprises in North America with, with a pathway to 80%. And 20 years later, there's no credible competitor that has emerged. But clearly since then, it's moved through a lot of different different departments, digitized your onboarding process as, as an example. And really, with what's going on with artificial intelligence and machine language, it's really pushed fanatically into that as well. And and so it's been really amazing to watch this company continue to grow without any credible competition emerge. And even in in the th- in the fourth quarter results it, it just reported, it still grew sales at 25% and earnings at 35%. And really, regardless of what macro has been thrown at at this business, it seems to be been growing at, at those those rates. So it's it's been incredibly successful. And and it shows you if you if you've got a value proposition. A product that's that's highly needed, you can you can grow regardless of what's going on in the in the broader economy. Well, Jason, that that brings us to the end of the formal part of the interview, or the or the free flow part of the interview. We do have three regular questions that we like to ask guests on the rules of investing, just to wrap things up. So, if you're happy to to stick around for a few more minutes, we might dive straight into those. I've tweaked them slightly to be specific to Hyperion, but I, I think they still uh, toe the line with what we'd regularly do. First question, can you start by sharing a story from a big win or a big loss? What happened and, and what did you learn? I think one of the most important investments Hyperion has made, and, and this is on the, in the big win side, has been through REA Group. So Hyperion initiated that position in, in 2004. And the reason why it's been so important is that stock hasn't increased five or 10 times over that period since 2004. It's increased more like 150 times. And what it's done is it's actually validated Hyperion's philosophy, process, aspirations, and and given a a real use case or, or reference that it can be done. So that investment in, you know, REA Group or realestate.com.au I think it's been incredibly important and it shows you if you've got a market leading business that continues to reinvest in its product, continues to nurture its ecosystem, can grow at double digit 
results can grow at, at double digits being capital light, you can actually get a position, and, and these are extreme positives, that you're not just increasing that five to 10 times over that sort of 10, 15 year, 20 year journey, you can increase it by 100 to 150 50 times. So I think that was a really important investment that Hyperion made to actually validate what we're trying to do. Jason, what do you think investors most commonly overlook or misunderstand about Tesla? Tesla's clearly a, a controversial stock led by a maverick. So there's continual short-term noise, noise, information flow headlines, sometimes positive, often negative. And a lot of market participants, I think, are focused on how many vehicles are you selling and, and at what, what prices. But really, over long periods of time, that's not relevant. And there's so much positive optionality built into this business. And we don't think people really understand how innovative Tesla is, the extent of the market leadership that it's got. And it's got capabilities, whether it's in design, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in software, whether it's in generalized AI that simply can't be replicated. And I don't think that's been understood. And it's probably not going to become obvious until they release their next generation platform. So they actually have a vehicle that's going to be at more entry level, more affordable. And so that's going to happen potentially in the mid to back end of, of 2025. And so once they start challenging the mass market with the product that they've got, I think that's going to become potentially a game changer for, for investors. But again, there's just so much positive optionality in it. It's a collection of startups in there. And, and some of it may not come off. And you know they're exper- exper- experimenting with the humanoid robots, obviously have aspirations to have autonomous or robo-taxi fleet. And, and they may not materialize, but if they do, and clearly there's tremendous value there as well. So it's, it's really going, trying to look out, trying to take, again, look at that long-term lens, see where they're going to be at the end of the decade, not where they are, are now, but really understanding those qualitative elements. And, and, and really, you need to take a view whether you think there's something special within that business or not. And, and we think there is, and we think it's a really unusual. Well, Jason, our final question, you talked frequently throughout this interview about Hyperion's long-term perspective and wanting to think about where earnings can be over the long term. What's a, an example of a company that you think can have significantly larger revenues seven to 10 years from now? Yeah, so I think globally and, and domestically, there's some market-leading software businesses with no competition. And ServiceNow is is one of those. And, and we think the management team are fanatical. They've got a really aggressive sales culture and they're hard to, hard to compete with. So unless a competitor does emerge, assuming the ex- execution cadence continues, we think ServiceNow will be a much larger business. And then when we look domestically, WiseTech's similar in terms of what it's doing at a global scale, there's no credible competitor in, in, in our view. And so it's dominating software delivery in, into, into logistics 
more specifically, freight forwarding. And we think that business has been de-risked a lot since we first invested in, in 2017. There's now 45 global freight forwarding companies rolling out their core, core software, not one or two. And then when you look at some of their other product products like Customs, they've got one or two global rollouts. And, and we see no reason why over a number of years they can't replicate the success in freight forwarding in, in Customs. And again, the, there's positive optionality in, in a business business-wise like WiseTech where they've got, in our view, a really compelling warehouse management product. There's the initiatives they're taking in, in, in landside logistics. But, I mean, WiseTech, led by Richard White, again, is a really unusual company because they've, in our view, executed nearly flawlessly. They've got a great business strategy. How they allocate resources is excellent. And they continue to reinvest heavily in, in product development. So although the share price can be pretty volatile in and out of, in and out of results, we think that could be a very large business if we take that lens out 5, 10, 15 years. Well, Jason, so much for taking the time out of your day to, to talk with us on the rules of investing today. It's been uh, great to hear about the philosophy at Hyperion and uh, I've really appreciated you being so open about a challenging year in 2022 and also some of the, the way that you think about investing. No worries, James. Thank you. Well, that's the end of today's show hope you enjoyed hearing from Jason and took away some lessons that can help with your own investing journey. If you did enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. We've got a great schedule of guests and topics lined up for the year ahead.